Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. This is a recording that I do of a weekly Monday night Bible study every Monday night at 7.30 at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel. If you're interested in joining us live, please email me and let me know or just show up in person. We'd love to have you. But without further ado, enjoy this recording of a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for the gift of this evening, the gift of your word, the gift of our presence to one another. And thank you for the gift of your spirit, who you send upon us wherever two or three are gathered in your name, you are with us. And so we pray, Lord, that we would be open and attentive to how you are speaking and moving amongst us and within us tonight. Speak boldly to us and through us. Help us to hear and receive the answers we seek to the questions we have. Receive comfort for the ways we are hurting or sorrowing. Receive guidance in the ways we are discerning. And we pray especially, Lord, that we would just encounter you and your love and your mercy and forgiveness, all that you have in store for us uh, in some small way tonight. We pray, God, that you would bless us each in the ways that we most need it. Bless all of us gathered here, those still on their way, and those who could not make it tonight. We just pray for growing of this community, that we would all um, grow in our own desire for you and your word. And so illuminate this time for us. We lay it at your feet. Remove any distractions or worries from our hearts, anything that takes us away from this place, so that we can be fully present as you are fully present here to meet us. We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome. We are in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 38. Matthew 5, 38. This is the gospel reading for this upcoming Sunday, the seventh Sunday in ordinary time, our last Sunday before the season of Lent begins. There's another uh, Lent is coming alarm. So hopefully you are thinking about that and all of the things you want to commit to or stop doing during the Lenten season. Uh, but for our purposes, we will be hearing this uh, next, uh, next uh, section of the Gospel of Matthew, picking up right where we left off last week. Okay, so we're in Matthew 5 starting in verse 38, and we're going to read to the end of chapter 5. All right, so first time through, remember where we are here. Jesus is speaking to crowds and his disciples. He's already taught about the Beatitudes. He's already spoken with authority. He's talked about salt and light and the city on a hill, and then started in this uh, train of teaching. You have heard that it was said back in the Jewish law, but now I say to you in deepening the law, and we continue in that uh, as we close out this chapter 5 of the Sermon on the Mount. So... Starting again, Matthew 5 in verse 38. Picture that scene, Jesus preaching to the apostles, the crowds, as we read together. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, offer no resistance to one who is evil. When someone strikes you on your right cheek, turn the other one to him as well. If anyone wants to go to law with you over your tunic, hand him your cloak as well. Should anyone press you into service for one mile, go with him for two miles. Give to the one who asks of you, and do not turn your back 
on one who wants to borrow. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your heavenly father. For he makes the sunrise on the bad and the good and causes rain to fall on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what recompense will you have? Do not the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brothers only, what is unusual about that? Do not the pagans do the same? So be perfect, just as your heavenly Father is perfect. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So, we're going to read this a second time, and this final time through. This time, I invite you to listen very closely to the words as they are read. Okay, so you might have an image in your mind. Set that aside for a moment and just pay very close attention to the words. Try and empty your mind of everything else if you are able. And then if something stirs in you, you have a connection to a word, it sparks something, or it connects to a memory or a thought, kind of out of nowhere, pay attention to that word or phrase. And begin to reflect on it. Ask, why is this standing out to me? What is the Lord trying to say to me through this word, this phrase, this detail? All right? Second and final time through Matthew 5, starting in verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, offer no resistance to one who is evil. If anyone wants to go to law with you, Over your tunic, hand him your cloak as well. Should anyone press you into service for one mile, go with him for two miles. Give to the one who asks of you, and do not turn your back on one who wants to borrow. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your heavenly Father, for he makes his sun rise on the bad and the good, and causes rain to fall on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what recompense will you have? Do not the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brothers only, what is unusual about that? Do not the pagans do the same? So be perfect, just as your heavenly Father is perfect. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So I invite you to reflect back on those things that stood out on this reading as a whole. Uh, And as you do so, uh, begin to discuss with the people at your table uh, what stood out to you, and as well as any questions that you have. If you're at a smaller table, feel free to combine if you like. Uh, Those listening, please let us know what stands out to you. But for those of us here, we're going to take about the next 10 minutes uh, to share, and then we'll bring it back to the larger group for questions and discussion. So what are some things that are standing out, things that just resonated with you, as well as any questions anyone has about this reading? Yeah, Chris. How far <laughs> what do you mean? Because when I'm asked that question, it's usually by teenagers, and it's about something else. <laughs> so how far is too far in terms of what we are called to endure as Christians? 
until we until we are able to retaliate? Is that the question? Okay. Um, so Jesus does not draw. He doesn't make a distinction here. He says, "Offer no resistance." Now the word he says the, the word that's used there for resistance in Greek is antistenai, and antistenai anti means just like not stenai. So stenai means to take a stand. So it means you're not to take a stand. And and he's saying that right after he quotes this line, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And this was a line basically giving you permission to take retaliation into your own hands to a certain degree. And so what Jesus is saying here is in the new covenant, it is not up to you to take retaliation. It is not up to you to ensure justice is borne out that, you know, people get what's coming to them or whatever it may be. So the catechism would say you do have a God-given right to defend yourself and to protect your own dignity, your own life, uh, to a certain degree. So you're not meant to be walked over and let anyone do whatever they want to you. But remember, we're, we're talking about, like, think about the context of everything we've talked about so far. Interactions with other people, our relationships, let your yes mean yes, let your no mean no, this kind of honesty. And then... Jesus is adding on to that, making sure that make sure that is borne out in your actions, that you're not taking it upon yourself to ensure that just because your yes means yes means yes and your no means no, that you can then go make sure everyone else's does. That you can go retaliate for every little injustice that you see. So pay attention to the context. It's not about be a doormat and let whoever do whatever they want to you, and that's the Christian kind of pacifistic thing to do. No, you have a right to defend yourself. Just like in um, church history and in, in the catechism, there's the just war theory that like there are certain conditions that can be met for uh, a state or a nation or a body of people to enter into a war for just reasons. Now, if you read those in their entirety, you could probably argue that no war in the history of humanity has ever been a just war because they're pretty high standards. But that being said, there is still a precedent that if there is great evil, and there is no other way of negotiating uh, against that or no other way of avoiding it, and there is a promise of even greater harm, there is the allowance for retaliation. Even if, even, uh, but that being said, your retaliation cannot cause greater harm than what was initially done. So that's true in a war setting, that's true in an individual setting. So in self-defense, if someone strikes you, you can't then just like beat them to a bloody pulp just because you are defending yourself and retaliating like that. It, it, there's degrees, you know, so it depends on the, the context. But Jesus doesn't give us blatant permission because the overall rule based on his context is you are not the exactor of justice or vengeance. I am. God is. Yeah. Yes. John. Um, so that... That was kind of what I was wondering about where, I mean, a lot of the times I've seen this as a, as a argument, you know, I mean, when people try to find contradictions in Christianity, and I've had a hard time intellectually trying to think about that, but I wonder if, because it, it reminded me of in Luke's gospel in chapter 22 where he said, basically, uh, you know, sell your coat and buy a sword. The disciples say, we have two swords here. And all Jesus says is, it is enough. Mm -hmm. And I've wondered if that's Christ's acknowledgement that, hey, you live in a violent world or mm -hmm. a world where that's capable. So be prepared for that. Because obviously Christ used violence to cleanse the temple. I mean, he fashioned a cord, and that's not exactly, you know, 
pleasant mm -hmm. to, to have around you. Now, whether he struck anyone, I don't know. I mean, someone charging at you with that, you're going to run away. Yeah. So I wonder if that's something where it, because I've had a hard time. It's like, you know, how, if I have to retaliate, how far do I go? How situational is it? Mm -hmm. um, and it just, I don't know, there's this like contention within me where it's like, even if it was totally just, you just, you feel like, wrong yeah having done that to somebody yeah well i would make the distinction that you never have to yeah right. you never have to retaliate like you can choose not to i guess when it's like super pressing with the just war thing with self-defense i mean there are times where and this is very extreme but like mm -hmm. in cases where you have to use deadly force to defend yourself and others sure you know that's it's tough to, in my mind, correct. I mean, I know that you can do it, mm -hmm. um, and I'm like going in a million tangents, but it, it, it's something that's difficult to like, you know, this call to love your neighbor, but also within that is sometimes you can unfortunately use violence against them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm getting a message here that you know maybe it's because the way we're taught to live our life, our modus operandi is we only give our time and. Our for even our goodness to the people we think that deserve it. Mm -hmm. Or the people that are going to pay us back. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's not the way God's working. Mm -hmm. And that's, to me, that's the message I'm getting from this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's what recompense means. You know, in, the, in that phrase where it says, uh, what recompense will you have? Recompense is compensation or reward. Like, re what reward do you have for doing the easy thing? You know, and always having mercy on the people who have mercy on you or giving to the people who give to you. Doing, basically, living the Christian life in a very safe way is a way, another way you could say that. In a safe way where there's a lot of guarantees that people are going to receive everything that you're doing with grace and understanding. You're not going to be misinterpreted. Uh, or that people aren't going to take advantage of you. That you know you have kind of insurances that like everything here is good. And, and not that we should put ourselves in a position to be taken advantage of, but are we stretching ourselves to the uncomfortable places, conversations and relationships to where that can even be a worry, you know? Um, I, I once heard someone say that if we were evangelizing well, then our churches should be filled in such a way that people would be scared to leave their bags in the pews when they went up to communion. That they're like, we should be drawing like the shady, the like the people that you wouldn't think, you know, would be in a church setting, like people on the, you know, people that wouldn't be expected or safe people. And this is a very kind of the unsafe, unsettling type of passage. And, and that really, I think, is the heart of it. You know, it's not that Jesus is trying to put us in all of these um, harm, potentially harmful or life threatening even situations. But he's trying to stretch our idea of what it means to love. Stretch our idea of what it means to be merciful to another person. And most of us, when we think of mercy, we think of it in this kind of safe situation where, like, I'll have mercy on someone because there's already the sense of trust or there's already this relationship here. What about the person I don't even know? You know, because God sees them the same. They're both his children. They're both people he desires to be in heaven both people we are on mission to love. And so why do we have this distinction, you know? But there is also, you know, the reality of community and relationships and vocation and covenant and like, I don't treat every woman like I treat my wife for obvious reasons, you know? And so there are degrees of that. But this, I think, has more to do with that, taking it upon yourself. Like, am I meant to be the exactor of justice, 
the one doing the things that God alone is meant to do? Am I putting myself in a position where I am saying, I have the authority and the ability, the knowledge, whatever, to stand in the place of God and make this judgment or retaliate in this way? And Jesus is saying to that, no, you don't. Like, definitively, you do not have the authority to do that. There's, there's no need for you to. Yes? Isn't there a passage that says, God said, vengeance is mine and mine alone. Yes. I don't remember what it was. Yeah, uh, Deuteronomy 32, and it's mentioned also in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It quotes it, that the venge vengeance is the Lord's. It's yes. Yeah, in fact, I think I have it. 1 Corinthians 6. Nope, that's not it. Just kidding. It's Romans 12. I have had my wires crossed. Yes, Romans 12, 19. Beloved, do not look for revenge, but leave room for the wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And that's quoting uh, Deuteronomy 32, 35. So reiterated in the New Testament that that is the attitude that we should have. We are not the exactor of justice. It is not up to us to take out vengeance on other people or to retaliate. But we are meant to be extensions of God's mercy. You know, this goes back to that age-old question that sometimes people have, like, why do good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people? And, you know, you read the book of Job, and he has that, like, sincere injustice that he is, like, saying, I want to petition this to the Lord. And his friends are like, dude, you probably messed up. You probably did something. You probably sinned somewhere along the way. And it's back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, chapter after chapter for, like, 35 chapters. Until finally Job is answered by the Lord. And even after he is answered, there's no real satisfying answer as to why he's had to endure all the sufferings he's had to endure. And so that book, that story of Job, is a lesson that when we think of divine justice and we try to bring it down to human understanding, we're always going to fall short. If we try and take it to our own hands, we're never going to fully understand it. And so we're going to make mistakes if we think that we have the authority to enact it, to work in a way that only God can. And so it's not up to us. It's not up to us to judge. It's not up to us to condemn. It's not up to us to um, you know, make those retaliatory actions against anyone else. That is up to the Lord. And in the end, he will. All justice will be borne out for all of us. Yeah, Noah. Yeah, just a little clearing to sort of into the uh, Job context, too. Uh, I think Teresa once, once said in prayer, Lord, you allow your friends to suffer. It's probably why you don't have many friends. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, something that just stuck out generally, especially in our conversation, um, Greg brought up an excellent point about, about especially those who, I mean, who, They've always existed, those who relish in the evil, who may even mm -hmm. be so bold as to say that, you know, I want to go to hell and I don't care, you know, what the consequences of that are. They have like an affinity to, you know, to be damned, to relish in vice. Um, and so I, I think just in sort of like reading the commentary, like with the scriptures, what stuck out to me is in, in that conversation, realizing that this is. Um, we could say a great punishment to that person who offends us. It, it's our spiritual punishment, right? Mm -hmm. In the sense that, you know, evil is always looking for something on to latch to, but never can because it has no ground to stand on, mm -hmm. right? 
And it is, you know, a great trick of the devil to say that, you know, this person is evil or this iniquity is always going to happen. You know, this suffering is always going to happen. Just give in and abandon God, mm. right? But it's that great revenge, you know, so to speak, in a proper sense that, you know, we say, no, I want to stand in the peace of the Lord and forgive my brother for acting against me. Mm -hmm. And that will be the punishment that I give unto him. And even if that doesn't change him, even if he still wants to have an affinity for, you know, damnable things, mm -hmm. right? It is guaranteed that he will not enjoy his punishment in eternity. Yeah. No one will enjoy their eternal punishment. Mm -hmm. No one will. No matter how much they say they do in this current life. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's just something I've been uh, reflecting on with, it, with the conversation. Yeah. No, thank you for that. And it, yeah, it just it reminds me of the example of Jesus. Right. I mean, he's the one who says on the cross, forgive them, Father. They know not what they do. You know, the perfect display of non-retaliation. And yet, what is he doing in that moment? He is literally defeating death. He is at war. And yet he's doing it in the most non-retaliatory looking way possible. That's why that's our model. That's why the crucifix hangs in our churches and not the risen Jesus. Not that we don't believe that Jesus is risen from the dead and rejoice in that joy and that victory. But to be reminded that the suffering servant on the cross is our model. This is what we bring. You know, it's just kind of the, you know, proverb, kill him with kindness, you know. But even then, it wouldn't be for the intention of killing them, hurting them. It's still, kindness is the path. Kindness is the weapon that we will win this battle with. You know, I, I've talked before about Jesus as the ambush predator. You know, there's these creatures in, uh, in nature that are called ambush predators. They hide and they lie in wait and they look either like they're dead or they're hidden or they're, they're not threatening until the moment that the prey comes close enough and then all of a sudden they strike in this completely lethal, irreversible way. And Jesus, we often see on the cross, we even call him like in certain hymns and parts of our liturgy, oh, spotless victim. We use that word victim. And that has to do with like atonement and sacrificial language about the temple but Jesus is also a warrior on the cross. He's an ambush predator. He's lying in wait, acting as though he is defeated until the enemy gets close enough for him to strike at that moment where the devil knows that he's, he's lost. And that's why there's this, there's, I love that they did this in the movie, The Passion of the Christ. If you're watching the crucifixion scene, there's the moment when Jesus dies and it cuts to this arid landscape and the character playing the devil shouts to the sky in agony because he's realized that he's lost. And it's a super powerful moment. It happens for a few seconds, and you can very easily miss it. And then right after that is when the tear from the Father in heaven looking down like from above at the crucifixion scene hits the ground, and then the earth starts to quake, and all of that happens. But it's that really beautifully paints the picture of what Jesus is doing. And he is the prime example for what he's talking about here. He models it. He never asks us to do anything that he wouldn't do himself. And so even though God is the primary exactor of justice... He says, in moments when it seems like there's an injustice happening and when you're called to either act with violence and power or act with mercy, look at the way that I did it. Act with mercy. It brings us back to a few weeks ago when we talked about the Beatitudes, blessed are the meek. And I talked about that word meek, praus in Greek. It's a word used to train stallions and horses. It talks about if a horse is meek in that, in that term, it means they are powerful, but that power is under control. That is what it means to be truly humble or meek. It's a recognition of the power and the dignity that we have in God, 
but it's under control. So again, it's not about being small. It's not about being walked over. It's not about being taken advantage of. It's about having control and using that control to extend love and mercy to others and not to use it for continuing the cycle of violence that we saw all throughout the Old Testament. Yes? Well, this just seems like this, you know, these two, uh, these two um, chapters here go back, or two, uh, what do you call them? Uh, sections. Sections go back to, you know, the last beatitude, which says, blessed are the peacemakers. Mm-hmm. That's what he's asking us to do here, is to be a peacemaker. Yeah. Yeah, and after that too, when he says, "Blessed are they, blessed are you when they persecute you, um, and offer you know what whatever it says against you in my name, rejoice and be glad, for your reward shall be great in heaven." You know, reward again, recompense, similar language. So we have to read this chapter in its entire context, see where it began. So exactly, it's whenever you're reading the Sermon on the Mount, if you find yourself flipping back in between, you're reading it correctly. You're like, oh, wait a minute. This sounds kind of like what Jesus said here, you know, a few chapters before. Everything in the sermon develops out of what was happening before and just gets richer and richer and richer to the point that if you read something like this totally out of context or even later, if you read it by itself, it may seem kind of like shocking, kind of like this passage does in some regards, right? Uh, But if you see how it's flowing out of the Beatitudes and how upside down the Beatitudes are, who are glorified, the poor, the meek, the mourning or sorrowful, that seems very backwards and upside down. But when you begin there, you can easily see how Jesus arrives at this. But if you dive in right here, just out of nowhere, it seems like, wow, this is a tall order. And it still is. It's not easy to love your enemies and to turn the other cheek. Um, But... When you see how Jesus is delivering it in context, it begins to make a little more sense. Other questions? Yeah. I just thought it was interesting that Jesus said, be perfect, because number one, he knows that we can't. Mm -hmm. And I always take it to mean like strive towards holiness. Sure. But I was telling my table as a recovering perfectionist, (laughs) (laughs) I feel like sometimes perfection is like the enemy of like acting. Mm. Like if I tell myself I have to do something perfectly, sometimes I don't do it at all. Yes. So I just was curious like what your thoughts were, if there was any context towards like why he would have used those words, be perfect instead of be holy or be merciful. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I think in the Gospel of Luke, the version of this does say, be merciful as your Heavenly Father is merciful. Um, But it's not a synonym for what's used here. So the word that's used here in Greek is teleios, and it means uh, teleology has to do with our ultimate destiny. It's like the study of our end or our fulfillment. And so when Jesus here is saying be perfect, He's saying, be mature or complete, like reach your potential or reach your goal, like what you are destined to, what you are meant to, to go to. There's only one other place in the Gospels where this is mentioned. It's in Matthew chapter 19 in the story of the rich young man, where Jesus says to the rich young man after he says, I've observed all the commandments. What else can I do? And Jesus says, if you wish to be perfect, if you wish to be complete, if you wish to be meeting that goal of fulfillment that your heart is aching for, then Go and sell all that you have. So that's, it's about the fullness that we are called to. So yes, if you hear that and you're like, be perfect as your heavenly father's perfect, you're like, yeah, right. What the heck? Like that's, you know, that's um, Luther, Martin Luther said that, um, that the word is too high and too hard that anyone should reach it. And he, he used examples of verses like this, you know, or uh, verses like this as an example of that that the the word presents a certain standard that we strive for, but that we can never attain. 
but also in this in the original Greek, it doesn't mean be perfect. It means be kind of complete or whole. So the word is also used like, um, like if you were building a machine and you put the last gear into place, you would then say it is now perfect. It's complete. All the parts are together working as they are meant to be working together. That's the way that that word is particularly used in, in the Greek version. So not we don't have to worry about doing everything perfectly. It's about doing everything in a complete, mature, or fulfilled way. And when we act this way, that's what Jesus is arguing, then you will. Yeah. Which is, makes more sense as to why in Luke it says, be merciful as your Heavenly Father is merciful, because that's what Jesus is asking us to be here, is to extend mercy in the moments where it's most difficult. Yeah, Greg. I've read this many times, but in a sense you said that we have... Morality is, is in, in Jesus on our side. We have the right to defend ourselves. Mm -hmm. Okay? Not to go, like if someone hits us, not put a knife in them and kill them, but to defend ourselves. Mm -hmm. But he says right here, you know what I mean? Offer no resistance to the one who is evil. Mm -hmm. Not just bad or having a bad day. Evil. Evil. Mm -hmm. <laughs> There's no, it's black and white, right? Yeah. Evil. When someone strikes you in your right cheek, turn the other one. But if the person's evil, you're saying, we have a right to defend ourselves. Well, I'll clarify that. I don't want to let them hit me again. That you have the right to defend yourself if your life is being threatened. Well, how do you know? So, yes, and that's, that depends on the context. But if someone hits you, and then you're fine, like that's all they did, you can't then be like, all right, here we go, got my turn to defend myself, like... It, it's, it depends on the degree and the situation, obviously. You should be able to block that second hit. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, and your instinct, your human instinct is going to be to protect yourself. Like, you're, a swing is not going to be coming in, and your brain is not going to be, all right, catechism paragraph 940 says, you know, in slow motion. Like, you're instinctually probably going to block it. And that's okay. You know, you have the ability to do that. Retaliation is different. Retaliation says, because you did this, now I get to do this to you. And that's different. Defending yourself is protecting your own dignity, protecting your life, which is a gift from God. Okay? Offer no resistance to the one who is evil. Yes. That's not going above and beyond. Offer no resistance. That's pretty black and white. Yeah, that, I would argue that too. That it's, it's, this is something pretty extreme that Jesus is asking us to do. But I think I think you're conflating. I think you're conflating. Um, offer no resistance to one who is evil. That's the end of sentence. And then it says, "Here's an example of something that could happen to you." But when he's, this is kind of say this is the topic sentence. Offer no resistance to one who is evil. Do not again. That resistance means do not stand up against them. Do not do not make a stand against them. Meaning you are not the one who is allowed to exact justice. You are not the vindicator. I am. So in this instance, then he gives examples, you know, but he's not saying the person who is evil, he's the one who is doing this. He's using an example that's very extreme, saying offer no resistance to one who is evil, meaning you are not the one who takes a stand against those who are wicked. I am. So in these different situations where you might encounter someone who is sinning or who is, you know, doing something that is immoral, here is how you should respond. Okay, but he's not talking about just one person or all of this being the, 
uh, an embodiment of someone who is completely evil, you know. Um, I think in the, in the use of that word, he's saying someone who is wicked or someone who has, you know, disobeyed the moral law. But no one, even the devil himself, is completely 100% wicked and evil. No one is. Because if you think about, philosophically speaking, for a second, if you think about, we'll nerd out, or I'll nerd out, and you can listen. Um, if you think about what evil is, evil is the absence of all good. And if there is a complete absence of all that is good, there's a complete disconnect and absence of God. God is the one who wills everything into being, who created all things. So if you are completely without God, you do not exist. If you are 100% devoid of all goodness in God, you do not exist. So that, therefore, is like the state of hell. You are completely separated from any kind of goodness, existence, community, etc. There is no goodness there whatsoever. Okay, it's a complete state of disconnection from God. Okay, but the devil, he is prowling like a lion here in this place. And he is a created being of God, God who can only create things that are good. And so the fullest uh, experience of evil, or the fullest embodiment of evil, even in Satan himself, is still just the worst distortion of something that is good. So no one and nothing is completely devoid of goodness. So it helps, you, it helps us also remember no one is lost. You know, there's no one who's a lost cause. Like, kind of know what you were talking about, people who, like, wake up and they, like, have this attachment to evil. And I was thinking that as you were saying that. I was like, yes, there are people like that. But still, even in those moments, they are not lost. Like, there is still the ability for them to come home. There's still the ability for them to be healed. And it could, sometimes those people, all it takes is just a, a nudge. You know, like I use the boat of like, or the analogy of a boat. If you have a boat that's like completely going in the wrong direction, all you need to do is turn them around. You know, they have the momentum. They may be running totally toward evil, but they have the energy and the movement. And if they have that moment, just one moment realizing I'm going the wrong way, they can move that momentum back in the right direction. The real dangerous person is the person who is in the boat and their sail's not even up. They're not going to move. They're not listening. They're lukewarm. It's too difficult. They want to be safe. They don't want to run toward the Lord. They're not willing to put in the time, the commitment, and the effort. But they think, well, I'm not evil. My sail's not even up. I'm not even moving. That, real, that can be the real danger. But for someone who is totally running toward evil... It sometimes take, it takes even a much smaller intervention to just turn them right around. That's why it says in Revelation 3.16, I'd rather you be hot or cold, for if you are lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. God would rather us be running totally away from him than frozen in isolation and unable to act or make a decision. Other thoughts, questions, reflections? Like, yes? Can you like, elaborate on that? Like, what would be an example of someone who's like... Uh, someone who's lukewarm might be someone who, um, do I say something controversial or not? Um, <laughs> so, um, I mean, I would argue probably there are a lot of regular churchgoers who are lukewarm. People who show up to Mass thinking like, okay, if I just go to Mass and I check the boxes and I do the things that have been expected of me that I learned from my parents, then I'm going to get to heaven and good things are going to happen in my life. But they've never encountered the person of Jesus Christ. They've never allowed him to transform their life. They've never actively repented or turned away from their sin in any meaningful way. And so they're not really a disciple of Jesus Christ. They're not running toward him, but they're not running away from him either. They're just kind of going through the motions. And I would argue there's a lot of people in churches. There's a lot of people in parish staffs. There's a lot of priests, religious sisters, brothers, people in my position too at churches everywhere who are not disciples of Jesus. 
who are not running toward the Lord. And they're not running away from him. But they think because of their position that they're in, and because of all the training and knowledge that they have, that that's enough. And that's why it's so dangerous, because it seems like it's very self-fulfilling. Seems like you're on the right path. But when you're running toward the Lord, you know. Like when you're passionately pursuing Jesus, you know. It bears the fruit in your life. You can tell. I guess it wasn't that controversial. So yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, mean, I would take that to mean I will reject you. Yeah. Because following, following Jesus is not just about going through the motions. It's about submitting your life to him. You know? I heard this today. Um, God is not attracted to our holiness. He's attracted to our helplessness. And people who are very welled up in their own spiritual achievement and their own holiness, look how great I am, look at all the holy things I do and all the people that I give to and all the things I go to and all the sacraments that I have and all of this. What can God do for them? They think they've got it all together. What what draws God near is that helplessness. And that's why sometimes people who are the furthest away from God, who become the greatest saints. Think about St. Augustine, you know, who was a... Manichaean priest in a pagan religion who had a child out of wedlock and became a doctor of the church. Think about St. Bartolo Longo, who was a satanic priest and had a conversion and became a saint in the Catholic Church. Those are the types of people that it's sometimes easier to intervene. St. Mary of Egypt, who was prostituting people on their way to do pilgrimage in the Holy Land and was prevented by the Holy Spirit from entering the tomb of the Holy Sepulchre and realized the mistakes that she was making, became a saint, and now that very chapel she couldn't enter is named after her. Like profound stories of conversion because they were moving, albeit in the wrong direction. But a little nudge, a little wind in the right direction can steer you back on course rather than just being immobile and thinking, well, maybe I'll float to safety one day. You know, that's never going to happen. Yes? I think that's like with Revelation, it's interesting. One of the things I learned about the seven churches that John was writing to is the effects of their lukewarmness. All those churches are in Turkey, mm-hmm. and it's like they're gone now. Mm-hmm. It's a museum. It's like it it really brings home to me how it's it's not just for me, my faith life. It's like this has really like real world consequences mm-hmm. for everybody around me. Yeah. And it's amazing how you can see evidence of Christ saying, I'll spit you out. And it's like, well, sure enough, man, Turkey's just no Christians there anymore. Yeah. Well, there are some, but those churches, yeah, those specific churches that they were, those letters yeah. were written to, probably not there anymore. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a museum now. Yeah. yeah. Other thoughts? Yeah. Uh, Richard? This is more of a pre- technical question. Could the Romans press you into service? Yes. So this, this uh, phrase here, if anyone wants, or, sorry, where is it? Should anyone press you into service for one mile, go with him two miles. So the word there is million in Greek, and it's a hundred, uh, a hundred pa- or a thousand paces. But a pace was like two steps. So roughly, if you do the math, adds up to about a mile. So a Roman uh, soldier could press any citizen, including those who were Jewish, under the realm of the, the Roman Empire, into service for a mile. So you could be going about your day, you could be on the way to your best friend's birthday or whatever, and a Roman citizen could come along and fully legally say, here, carry this for the next mile, and you had to do it. So it, it was legal for yes. that soldier to, to press Simon of Cyrene to carry the cross. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yes. And I think that's, that is the similar command. You know, he just has to obey. He's part, he's a citizen in the Roman Empire, whether he likes it or not. Yeah. Yes. A little side note, 
more like inflammation in your bloodstream. Oh yeah. It causes like more hurt on your body. Mm -hmm. But when you forgive and that you let go, then you just start to naturally become calm. And, like, mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a, have you ever heard of the Christian argument for longevity? It's uh, you should be Christian because it just makes you healthier. <laughs> Like when you're really happy as a Christian, you do the things that Jesus said to do. It just makes you like scientifically, they've done studies. It just makes you bodily healthier and happier and it extends your lifespan, you know? And so there's something to that, that it, it, it brings you good. It does not destroy. It gives this kind of abundance biologically. It can be kind of a, not, not the best argument for Christianity, but it can be a argument for Christianity. So, yeah. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, it's really, really interesting. So, other questions, thoughts? Yeah, great. You have heard that it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. If I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. If you're perfect, you can love your enemy. If you're human, you can maybe tolerate. <laughs> <laughs> well, notice this. Uh, Jesus says, love your enemy. He doesn't say you have to like them. Okay? And love, as Thomas Aquinas defines it, is to will the good of the other. So to will someone's good is to want salvation for them, is to want heaven for them. That doesn't mean you have to like them. You know, there are plenty of people that I want that for, who I would rather not be around. You know, so like, but that's still, that's still what we're called to do. We're called to love one another. But that doesn't mean, oh, that we have to be in love with each other, that I have to you know, act the same way with everyone as I do with my best friends and my wife and the most intimate relationships in my life. No, like, I have boundaries and I don't have infinite time, you know? Like, that's just not possible. But that desire to will the good of everyone, that's what we're called to. This line, the, you know, what's interesting about this is when Jesus says, you have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, it, it doesn't say hate your enemy anywhere in, in the Old Testament. That's not a law. Love, love your neighbor is. And then there are prescriptions that say, you know, this is, yes, this is just for your Jewish brothers and sisters. But then later on it says, do unto the foreigners and the refugees exactly as you do to one another. Hold the same law to those who come into your, into your nation or into your community who are outsiders. So there is no prescription, inferred or explicit, that you should hate your enemy. So what this implies is that this was a development. People had started to do this. And we see this in like the different cultural divides between the Samaritans and the Jews and the Zealots and you know, the scribes and Pharisees and the Sadducees and all this infighting that had happened by the time Jesus comes around, that this had become the norm. It was totally normal to hate your enemy. And I look around at the world today and even within the church and outside of the church, and it, it seems like it's pretty normal for a lot of people to pick them, whoever them is to you in your life, and just rag on them and say, why can't they get their head together? I don't understand why they believe this or why they can't, you know, why they can't come around to seeing that, like, you know, you see this in the pro-life and pro-choice movement, you know, like, why can't they see that this is a human life and they're just, they're, they just must be these evil, vindictive, awful people. And we start painting them in this them position as enemy, as enemy. And political elections, people who are the front runner for their opposing political party, 
Oh, this person, everyone, your candidate is the savior, he's Jesus Christ, and the other candidate is Satan. That's how everyone views politics, in my opinion. Like, somewhere in the back of our mind, that's what we think, you know, especially people who aren't Christian, because we all have that desire for a savior in us, whether you know it or not, and if you're not Christian, you just apply it to politics. You're like, this person will save us. They're the best. Every policy that they have, I agree with. They've never made a mistake ever. The other person is the incarnation of pure evil, and they're the worst. You know, that's how we view it, right? It's us and them. Us and them. And so when I was reflecting on this, when I was praying right before this, I was kind of challenged to think about who are the them in your life and in my life? Who are they? Who are they? Because the merciful thing to do is not to take justice into our own hands, not to condemn them or pronounce judgment upon them, but to love them, which means will their good, will their salvation. So the mentality you and I should have is that whoever they are, I hope that one day, People can walk into a church named Saint their name. That is the the love that we are meant to have with them. So whoever that party is, that individual, I hope that one day, I pray that the mercy of God is powerful enough, that the miracles of God are powerful enough, that one day in a single city, there could be two Catholic churches, Saint Donald Trump Catholic Church and Saint Joe Biden Catholic Church. I'm serious, because the mercy of God could make that happen, couldn't it? Couldn't it? It seems kind of ridiculous because we know of all of this infighting and how impossible that seems like it could happen. But do we pray and have mercy and love people that way? Like, what if everyone who had a problem with both of them actually individually reached out, like in a direct message online, was like, hey, I would really love to just like share with you what I think. And like, I know you're probably a decent person. I've never met you. I hear all these things. Like, how many people actually did that? Like, everyone who demonizes people online? Like, what if our first inclination was, let me reach out to them in love and and try and proclaim the gospel to them and have a conversation? I know that. Like, I'm saying this is something that's so hard and so difficult, especially when people believe things or have certain policies or stances that we think are like, just, I can't even relate or get behind that. But still, the mercy of God does not have a loophole for anyone. Everyone is meant to be seen through that light. Everyone is destined for heaven. Every single person. And you and I, this passage, what it's telling me is that I can be the extension of God's mercy to other people. I can be the doorway or a doorway on that journey, making that 180 degree turn to the Lord so they can finally see, yes, like this is something that is for you, that God loves you, God is for you, and that there are things in your life that are not aligned with God and they're not making you happy. They're destroying you. And I love you enough to tell you that I want you to be free of that. I desire that freedom and that joy for you so that you will live eternally with me and Jesus, hopefully all of us in heaven. So let's help each other get there. That is the very extreme view of mercy, how we should hold our room in our hearts for even the most out there person, even the person that has hurt us most in the world. Again, so much easier said than done because people do horrific things to each other. And I can't fathom, you know, having not experienced some of those horrific things myself, I can't fathom having to sit across from someone and tell them, you know, like, you should love your enemy in that particular situation if someone had been abused or raped or whatever it might be. And of course, that wouldn't be the thing that I would lead with, you know, but part of the healing process eventually is confronting that person in your mind, in your heart, making them own what they did, but also allowing yourself to be free of it and wishing freedom for them. Because even the person who we think wakes up and is totally 
like incarnate evil, they got that way somehow because of things that happened to them. Like think about how much mercy and love they need if they're that badly off. About how much was done to them. And yet, it's so easy to put them up on this evil pedestal and say, look at all they're doing to us, to me. That's the extreme thing that Jesus is talking about. It has nothing really to do with physical retaliation. It's everything to do with kind of the ambush predator symbolism of having the like, ability to go to war with love as your weapon, with mercy as your weapon, in every instance, in every circumstance. And that is a very hard thing to do, brothers and sisters. Marco? Relative to the them that you were talking about, Yes, yeah, absolutely. That's what it means to will their good, 100%. Yeah, Barry. So true, we need uh, more love speech. Yeah. You know, this world's lost a lot of love. Amen. And we can be the conduits of that. I think we're at time. So uh, thank you. Thank you for being here. And I think as we reflect on this passage, as we pray through it, as we kind of maybe let this challenge or these words challenge us and settle in our hearts, I would really encourage you to think about who are they? Who are the people that maybe I need to privately repent to God that I've just demonized? Whether they know it or not, whether I've even interacted with these people or not, but how do I need to be free of some of that anger and violence I've put out in the world, even just in my own heart, my own mind? And then how am I being called to be an extension of mercy, of God's love to other people, even in the most horrific of circumstances, the most uncomfortable situations, not when it's safe, not when it's easy, I'm reminded, lastly, of, you know, when it says, what recompense do you have? And if you give to your brothers only, what's unusual about that? Like this challenge to give to everyone. St. Augustine says, we are called to give to whoever asks, but not always what they ask. And the gift that you and I have of mercy and of authentic Christian love is far more valuable than what most people ask for. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Jesus, for the gift of this evening and of these words. Challenging they may be, but they are true, and they are inviting us into a deeper experience of your love, your mercy, and your forgiveness. And so we pray, Lord, for the ways that we need healing, the ways that we've been hurt, the ways that this challenges us because it makes us feel vulnerable or worried or like we won't measure up to this in the moments when we are called, when we are persecuted, when we are asked too much. We pray, God, that you would help us to be your hands and feet. You would help us to be your loving arms and embrace your merciful words, your presence, your forgiveness to others who need that healing as well. Because we are all broken and helpless and sinners in search of a savior. And so, Lord, we hope and pray that we have found you and allowed you to change our life. But help us then to be that lighthouse for others who are lost at sea to find their way to you. We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.